Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Education Suspended is a production of Intricate Roots Educational Consulting Services. Our editor and production manager is Katie Kunin. Our producer is Jamie Higa, and our music is provided by Poets Row. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 19 of Education Suspended. I am Jessica Pfeiffer, one of the co-hosts. Super privileged to have you here today. I hope you all are doing okay and taking care of yourselves. We sit down today with Nelba Marquez-Green. He was the founder of the Anna Grace Project, which started back in 2013 following the shooting um, in Sandy Hook, which took the life of her daughter, Anna Grace Marquez-Green. I had the privilege of meeting Nelba years ago back in Banff, Canada, and hearing her speak. And her story is just beautiful. It's a story that no mother, parent, loved one wants to hear, but it's a story that grounds us to the reality of the system has to change. So Nelba uh, is a marriage and family therapist, and actually I learned she used to be a music teacher when we were interviewing her. So that's why I love doing this. Listen, you know, I don't think any of us anticipated enjoying doing a podcast so much. And every episode, every guest that we interface with, dialogue with, I am left with just an absolute sense of, I don't even know what word to use, of gratitude that they give us their time and share their story. So even though there is loss uh, and the theme of loss in our podcast, this episode is so much bigger than that. We really jump into, it's, it is, uh, been an interesting year. And so how do we find spaces for all of us, regardless of our roles in education that work for us? How do we lean into creativity and use that as a path forward? And it's a really big theme of a holistic lens. Why is a holistic lens so important to healing for us as educators, um, as mental health providers in schools, as administrators, in, in bigger yet, why is the holistic lens so important to the students and families that we work with? So I hope you enjoy this episode. Sit back and enjoy Education Suspended with Nelba Marquez-Green. Nelba, welcome to Education Suspended. It's an honor to have you here. Um, I have to be honest, all of me wishes that we were doing this face-to-face in Banff with a glass of wine in our hand, but this is going to have to do. <laughs> um, and I know Steve's in his in, in his a wine cellar right now recording, so we're kind of doing it in general. That's <laughs> what we do. This is what we do. So we start all our podcasts the same. If you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself to our listeners. We love it if, if you'd feel okay kind of sharing your own educational story. What was education um, like for you? What was that journey like for you? And then what do you do today and how did you get there? And let's just, we'll go from there. Sure. So um, I'm glad you brought up BAM, first of all, because that is where this relationship begins in this place that um, kind of summons healers and caretakers and change makers from all over the world, mostly the U.S. and Canada, into this beautiful healing um, sacred space. And I, I still remember the first time meeting you, Jessica, like I was just sitting in the back of one of the presentations and I, I don't know what happened, but then I went to one of your workshops and I just thought your work was so compelling. And the same um, with you, Steve, you know, just your name kept popping up in terms of 
doing the work, doing the work in classrooms and doing the work well, and with lots and lots of integrity and good information. So I'm just honored to be here. As far as my educational background, you know, I was a migrant to the U.S. And um, our educational story is, my uh, my family's educational story is quite, quite different. When you come to the U.S. Um, with a different language, with different cultural experiences, it can be quite challenging you know there's some there's some really really wonderful skills and also there's there's lots of um you know hard things and from all of it i learned quite a bit of of resilience but i was always a kid that was really good at school and because of um the ability to make connections um uh, connections with people connections with books connections with learning I always had that and and that was really important and sparked a curiosity and at home uh, education was a priority and uh, it was always always a thing that would just kind of happen so I, I actually uh, have a bachelor's of music with an emphasis in education and was a music teacher for a bit and then uh, went on to get my uh, master's in marriage and family therapy so I am currently a licensed marriage and family therapist um, in the state of Connecticut and very proud uh, to have roots in education as well. And thank you again for having me. Melba, how old were you when you made this transition to the States? You know, it's that's an interesting question because I was two, but my mom was a teacher. So we spent all of our summers in Puerto Rico and I mean, literally left the day after school got out, went back there. Even though I was two, I felt like I left I've lived in two different places yeah. um, and it was really hard um, to, to, to have that. Um, at the time, the population of Connecticut was changing. We had just had a very uh, deep migration of folks coming in the 50s, mostly men, Puerto Rican men, to work the forests, uh, the trees, and the tobacco lands. By the time our my part came, I, I, I came those men were sending for their families and having children, right? So the school districts are like, what are we going to do with all these kids that we do not know how to teach? So there was a huge effort by the Department of Education to uh, recruit teachers. And that's the migration we we came with. My mom is, uh, was, uh, she's retired after 32 years of teaching a special education teacher. And that's how we end up in Connecticut. There's this effort to recruit teachers that understand these kids that are coming with different needs. Um, and that's how we end up coming here. Oh, oh thank you. Is, yeah, such a cool story. That. Can I ask one more question about this early background? I, I would love to know what advantages you had. I mean, there are other similar people to you probably listening to this podcast at times. What advantages did you take coming from Puerto Rico to the U.S. that, that helped you in your early education? I would say I always knew I had more. Um, while there were some people who made that more feel like less. For example, I spoke two languages, right? Yeah. And I didn't fit in any particular place. So I was able to, I, I'll never forget my neighborhood. My neighborhood was this, you know, I guess they would call it a housing project, but it was really this place where at that time, there were very diverse families. I still remember we had black families, we had white families, we had uh, Puerto Rican families. I remember on the corner, there was a Muslim family and we all lived together in this place and the kids all played in a shared common courtyard. So I felt, even though a lot of people would have made us feel like we had less, I mean, we didn't have a lot of money. 
Um, we all spoke with heavy, heavy uh, accents. I always knew I had more, right? I could do more things than a lot of people, um, not less. Oh my, yeah. I love that, that neighborhood, yeah, it sounds magical. I know. And I want to, not that I want to take this and talk about your mom the whole time, but it, I mean, having, having a teacher, right, as a parent, I'm wondering, well, yeah, your mom, you had a heavy emphasis on education. Was there, was there anything else that kind of made your story a little bit different because of her experience? I, I just, I can't, I don't want to paint um, a picture that it was all roses. It was incredibly difficult. I, I remember when we lived in Winnipeg, you know, we had relocation and support services for migrant and immigrant families, and it was still hard. Well, in the 70s to the U.S., we didn't have any of that. You had to figure it out and adapting to different cultural norms, adapting to, you know, my mom didn't know how to drive. You know, she, yeah. she had a difficult relationship. Everything was hard. So I would like to say so many of us make so much of resilience and that's important but we have to make sure the support matches because it was incredibly difficult yeah yeah I like that but there's there's resiliency that comes along with that story for sure oh 30 she made she did it 32 years special yeah. education seventh and eighth grade middle school in a very uh impoverished area um so she did it <laughs> now she's my hero middle school sorry <laughs> sorry team but that's just puts her up another level yeah, middle yeah. school's no joke. No, it's not. They're smelly and growing and it's tough. <laughs> and wonderful and wonderful. Let's and just... wonderful. Yes. Yeah, that's your happy place, Grainer. So now I'm, I was hoping that we could talk and kind of move into the Anna Grace project. Um, it's interesting in that I've just learned so much about you. And one of my favorite things about this organization is that like it, it's really grounded in connection and relationships. And it seems to be very grounded in music. <laughs> which I didn't know that you were a music teacher. So could you talk about the Anna Grace Project, what you do, your mission, your connection to schools, how you work with teachers? Yeah, let's just start with that. Sure. Well, I, I'd like to say that the Anna Grace Project is one organization that embodies a, a set of values. There are so many people doing entirely good work. Um, but after our lives change, um, after moving to the U.S. and uh, losing a child in a national incident, um, we wanted to have a way forward, a pathway forward, and, and people wanted to help. So we create and develop a, a system, a structure, a, a program, a project, I don't know what you want to call it, that just kind of says, hey, if you want good information, good resources, and you want to look at things a bit differently, right? Um, very often, I find that we fall in love with a flavor of the month kind of modality or thing and it's expensive and it is it is uh, dependent on teachers in a building or educators in a building staff in a building having it and the learning leaves with the 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 educator if, if the educator leaves or we do it for like three years and then there's this next thing and I wanted to think about things a little bit differently there are best practices there are there are really, really good um, things out there that if we do them, it doesn't matter where we go and it doesn't matter who comes in and who leaves, we can create more healing and more holistic places. And that's kind of what I wanted to do. So 
I had to set it up in, in the form of a nonprofit, but it's it's really not a thing that does all the work. I'm just a person who tells stories and shares information and tries to encourage people to look at alternative pathways of healing. Um, after our involvement in Sandy Hook, um, on our first flight after the event, I am flying with my family to Los Angeles because I have a son who survives, right? And um, he's being offered all of these things and he really doesn't want to do anything. But the LA Kings call and they say, would your son like to come out to a game? And my son says yes, because my son has just spent the past previously years in Canada and he wants to see hockey. So we fly out to hockey. And before I get on that flight, the psychiatrist on my team hands me the boy who was raised as a dog and says, don't forget everything we've been working with together. And this is, um, you know, becomes a pivotal moment. I read the book on the flight and I say, I have to get in touch with Bruce Perry. And um, that was really hard. It's really hard to find him, but I did. And um, tell us about it. We, we all know that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did get in touch with him eventually. And I said, I, I really resonate with so many things here. And that started laying the foundation for some of the work. I love the word that you said. Well, there's two words. You said holistic. So I'd love to jump into that. What does that mean? And then, you know, your story with, you know, the, this, this massive organization, the LA Kings reaching out to you and your son and your family afterwards saying, Hey, we'd like to give you something. I, I, I want to go into that next, because I also think um, within education right now, it seems like, I mean, not seems like we are in the middle of an adverse experience, right? We are in the middle of, of, of somewhat of a crisis. And the analogy would have been, you know, the LA Kings would have reached out three months after COVID started and the LA Kings are now gone, right? And we're kind of in the, when we're in the muck, we're in the thick of it with these educators. So I also want to go to that, but let's start with this, this theme of holistic. What does that mean to you from, from a perspective of healing and why is that so important? Wow. You know, when you called me to do this, I didn't think I'd have much to say. And now I, I realize I have so much to say. I don't think we're going to get it all in the podcast. You know, it is about a well-rounded approach to helping people that allows for them to grow their own skills, allows for them to grow their own strengths that doesn't create dependence. I'm just kind of going through a checkbox and that doesn't require outside people coming in to do the healing. Um, it is, um, I think holistic healing requires you to do your own work but also gives you the tools to do so. And I'm just thinking about my experience after Newtown, where you're right, we had a lot of outside people kind of want to fly in, kind of want to say, look at my thing. Here is the healing part, right? We do that to families all the time. We say this model, this technique, and I'm not quite sure that's always the best approach. Um, I, I actually am sure that's not the best approach. Um, and, and we need to really look at helping families differently and also examining those larger systems, which interfere with the progress of families. If I'm working in a district where the problems include the disenfranchisement of families through programs that don't help them or through, um, the uh, disproportionate incarceration of Black men of, of the families that I'm working with, well, then I'm going to have to do something than prop up a model I learned about in graduate school, right? There are bigger issues that impact our families. And I think holistic healing includes finding spaces for us 
that are effective in the therapy room or wherever we work, but also in the world as we live in it, um, that also impact our families, especially. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I, and I think I was just writing down notes because this is what I do, but you just said finding spaces for us that work. And I think that's the pivotal when I hear holistic of like, it's not a cookie cutter approach. No. You know, it's not something that you take. Yeah. I, I picked this up in grad school. No, it's, I have the capacity to be present right here with, with whoever I'm working with. Uh, and then for myself of what, what's that space look like for me? And so I think there's flavors that probably it seems like are very important to you and your family system, which were music, right? And kind of found their way into the Anna Grace project, which were um, leaning heavy into the relational context. There are probably also individual individualistic things that are very separate for you and members of your family that were part of that healing process. So I, I really like how you said that we had to find our own space. Can, can we drill down just a little bit to a couple practical, I mean, you made it very clear, we got to help people help themselves. And I love that. But in order to make that assist happen, I'd like to know a, a couple of those ways that you're doing that, Nelva, um, ways that you're getting people to that point where they they can internalize the, the changes that need to happen. And, and they're they feel supported, but yet they're independent as well. So that seems like a tricky thing. I would love to know some of the ways you assist in doing that. Well, one of the ways that we found that we really needed to impact that is with the health and well-being of the therapists in the schools doing the work that we support. If they're not okay, then nobody else is. What does Bruce say? A dysregulated teacher can't lead a regulated classroom, right? Dysregulated therapists can't actually do the work as effectively. That doesn't mean we need to live perfect lives and we all need to have that perfect balance of our yoga class with our you know, healthy eating. And we're not all going to live on that plane all the time. At least maybe it's just me. But I do believe that we are living in a season. We are asking too much of people. And we yeah. have to say, this is too much, right? And, 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 and I need help. Um, so creating the space for people to say that, I think, is a way that is important. I had so many teachers call at the beginning of the pandemic, and they didn't want to know, they didn't want me to give them more tools to be resilient. They wanted me to hear them say, I can't do this anymore. I am afraid. I want to leave teaching, but if I leave teaching, I'll lose my health care. Um, I have two kids in college, and I don't know how to do this if I leave my job. I mean, there were real problems, and they didn't need to say, read this book on resilience. They needed me to hold them in that pain and say, you're damn right. This is unfair. This is not okay. What do we do to keep you safe for the next 24 hours? And then the next 24 hours after that, what are those baby steps? So I think helping those folks in the position to, to help our kids and families is, is really one way that we start. Yeah, I was watching um, one of, one of uh, it was a TED talk that you did um, years ago and you, you were speaking to teachers like, yes, teachers, we need you to teach, right? Of course we do. But, but more importantly, we need you to connect. And so when I hear you getting those phone calls, that's, that's been my experience for the last, how many months have we been doing this? 17 months? I don't know. It feels like many. forever. Yeah. Too many. Yeah. Um, and starting the school year of teachers are, are exhausted. They and are. It's unfair to ask them to connect 
in an exhausted state. I get that all the time. I get, you know, I have had seasons where I have been exhausted and it's just like, go inspire people, go, you know, give that lecture, do this. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to call bullshit on this. I don't want to do that. I was doing it from a place of integrity and I'm tired and I should be able to say that. And that's um, a freedom and a reality that we need to give to more people because systems will keep expecting if we do not say enough is enough. This is, this is insanity. So um, yeah, that, that's kind of what I want to say about that. Well, I like you calling bullshit because eventually it's going to bite everybody in the butt, right? Of like, if, if you can't connect, you're not going to be able to teach. No, I was just thinking of our conversations we've had in the last week and, and Nelba just, backs it up so well with uh what, what I, I loved what you said about we just got to make it simpler i'm a track coach so i say we got to shorten the interval we can't ask as much energy anymore we have to really really get back to that point of healing first so i i loved what you said about simplifying backing off not not pushing forward and i think we're hearing that from a lot of great great thinkers and leaders right now if people are listening but our systems are feeling that pressure. And I'm sure you can speak to this. They're really feeling the pressure still of ridiculous things like national test scores and, and, and all the other you know accountability measures that have crept into education that don't matter as much as, as the real connection that Jessica was talking about. Um, I'm seeing that all the time. And I think these outside pressures, we, we need to kind of bring a little release there. I don't know if you're seeing that in Connecticut. I'm guessing it's all over. You know, it's interesting. One thing that I like to just really think about, well, actually, I don't like to think about it, but I do think about it, is all of the ways that we alleviated pressure for those families and those students and those educators in Sandy Hook after the shooting. We were aware that there was a major trauma. So we did things like that year, 2013, we eliminated the, the test, that, that yeah. national test. We, we said, we don't wanna take it. You have faced a trauma. We, we did so many things. We, we stopped counting absences, right? The, the school district was able to uh, manipulate and massage and, and they got permission to kind of release pressure, right? If you think about, hold on. If you think about this soda thing, right? And I shake it, shake it, shake it. And if I flip the cap off, right, it's going to just come spilling out. But instead of flipping this, uh, turning this uh, soda cap off, we were just able to do it in incremental steps, right? And that was one group, one school, we were able to give support. I think what's happening now, it's now it's everywhere. And we're, we're, it's, it's difficult to provide support when trauma is everywhere. So what does releasing the cap and incremental steps from that soda bottle look like? Um, And I don't know what it looks like, but I do remember the measures and grace that was given Sandy Hook School after this terrible thing has, has happened. And I think we have to look around and say, guys, we're in a terrible thing right now. We're in a very, very difficult thing. What can we do to make it better for everyone? Yeah. Can I just make a little guess, but I'm pretty sure I'm right, that the kids at Sandy Hook academically turned out just fine? I don't mean that was easy. I just mean that there was no need to panic to get the allowances you did made such a difference that 
these kids turned out okay. You know, I want to tell you something. Uh, that year and for so many years after, we talked very openly in my house about days where we weren't feeling it, you know, because of grief, because of, you know, many, many different things. And I never regret those days. You know, I actually am thankful we modeled that for our son because when there was times he couldn't, right? When he would say, I, 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 just, I just can't get this done. We would say, okay, it's fine. It's not a big deal. And, you know, I'm, I'm proud to say now that he is a, um, he's going into his third year. He ended up getting a scholarship to prep school, like a, a very, very, like 10% acceptance rate uh, prep school. And he's on, he's an honor student. And I'm not trying to give myself a lot of credit here, but I'm so grateful we never made product the yeah. end goal. I'm so grateful that we made health the end goal. And I, I, I wish so much that we would do that now for all of our families. And I think, okay, what are, what are the systems that would need to be in place in order for that to happen? But it is something we have to talk about because on the one hand, I'm hearing lots of talk about learning loss. On the other hand, I'm hearing so much talk about oh, how we still have to get back to normal, how we have to you know, do all these things. And, and, and there's some, there some real problems there. I feel like these two contradicting messages of let's make up the learning loss and get, and then, and we have to get back to, to normal, like normal, we can get back to, I think in some degrees, right. Of, of let's get back in these classrooms that are regulated. Let's get back with these relationships that the, that the teachers have. But my biggest fear is that we're going to, we're going to go back to a normal that never worked, I guess is kind of what my biggest fear is. And so how do we use that? I think the other piece that's coming up is Right. When it comes to healing, we know that relational component is really important. And I think a lot of teachers are also, and I don't, I don't want to overgeneralize, but I think there's a lot of anxiety in regards to how do we, how do we support these students, right? Um, as we were prepping for this episode, I think the most recent statistics from around the world are around 1.5 um, million children have lost a caregiver. Um, and then within the United States, I think it's right around 46,000 children. So numbers are staggering. And so I think there's a lot of anxiety for teachers that they have to show up and not only just teach, they have to say the right thing, they have to do the right thing. And just kind of remind them of like, you just kind of being you, you just being present is, is what that is. Yes. Um, I would on that thing. We're going to say the right thing. We're going to do the right thing because newsflash, we're going to mess up. We're going to mess up all the time, but here's where that incredible concept of rupture and repair, building relationships that can withstand rupture and repair. That's why it matters so much because we've got, we, we are a very um, grief averse culture. We don't want to talk about loss, right? Because loss, like losing a child, losing a parent, losing a person, it doesn't resolve. We are a culture enamored with resilience and overcoming stories and 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 losing Anna doesn't ever get better no. right you're that, that kid who comes to into your classroom and that says my mommy died from COVID that's never going to get better so one of the reasons we are so grief averse is because we are taught from early on that about progression about getting better and some things don't get better so because of that we are so afraid to talk and I would say even if you make a mistake bring it up. Uh, recently, I was in a situation where my son for the first time had to do something on December 14th that was academic. And I, I was just really with the heaviness of that, but he wanted to, he wanted to take his exams and he did great. 
but I called before um, the yeah. folks and said, hey, just want to let you know this is the first time. And they said, thank you for sharing that. Um, you know, we'll be on watch. We'll be on standby. We will be here. And they had the information. So we don't have to have all the right answers. There is no right thing to say, but I deeply appreciated those folks who were able to say, hey, we know today's kind of a, you know, it's a crappy day we're here in case you need anything. And um, it's about building those relationships and that ability to say that. And for teachers, that peer support, I thought it was sacred that teachers could call me and say, I am afraid I need help. Where can I get help? That is a good thing that we can get to that point where we can say those things. That's not failure. Yeah, absolutely. I, there's a story of of the school, this district that I was working with last year, and, you know, part of the focus of, of the year that it was, was providing the space for the teachers to s- find some form of uh, maintainable regulation throughout the year. Yeah. Um, and there was this one teacher that, that, that in particular, it was interesting because she was, when it came from like the external view of like taking care of herself, she was like leading the charge. And yet there was kind of this, this gap between, okay, I'm doing this externally, but internally, when she got into the classroom, she still was, it was just a heavy heart. She was still very overwhelmed. Um, And she came back to one of our trainings. I mean, I think there was only two months left of the school and she came back in and she said, I did something that scared me, um, but it was phenomenal. And she goes, I came into school that day and I wasn't ready to teach math. And for the last seven months, I would have just put my head down and gone. And I wouldn't have been as effective, but I would have done what I was supposed to do. Um, she goes, but I didn't. I stopped and I look at my, I looked at my kids and I said, I don't have it today. I'm sorry, I don't have it today. Let's go to the library, grab something that you want to do. And she said, after that, she goes, we had the, we had the best two months I've had almost as a teacher because she modeled and showed that it was safe to not have to have it all together. So I think it's just important because it's, you know, even if you are doing what you are told to be doing, which is self-care, giving back to yourself, that's, that's, it's, it's deeper than that. That's not, that's just not the holistic perspective. So that, it just reminded me of that story when you were kind of sharing that of, of what, what does this mean for our teachers and their ability just to call and say, I can't go on. I can't do this right now. Cause if we don't give them that space, I mean, I think that we think the teacher shortage is bad right now it's only going to get worse, right? And no one wants me to be teaching any academic content and we're going to get there. And then it's going to be, that was a joke. None of you laughed. (laughs) The moral is it's going to get bad, right? Yeah, I don't know. That just came to mind when I was thinking about that story. Well, no, maybe you're ready to pivot. I'm ready to pivot because I, I know about the Green families great musical abilities and I'm really curious Nelba and Jimmy and what how you guys have used music for healing and and how and maybe it's too soon to talk about that but I'm so fascinated by that Um, obviously love music myself but what you've done with the Anna Grace Project and music and your background as well as a as a music teacher and as a musician yourself I'm sure um, how have you used that modality to bring about healing and, and resilience and maybe even a little vulnerability? I don't know. Well, definitely lots and lots of that. And I think um, in one of our interviews, we talked about the responses that we, that we often cite 
you know, to traumatic events or, you know, fight, you know, flight and freeze. And, you know, one of the ones I added was create, right? So creation, the create, cre creativity um, can be a pathway forward. And it's certainly something my husband especially leaned on deeply, um, which I think was especially critical for him because men's grief is looked at much differently. Actually, it's largely ignored. So even to this day, I still might get 20 letters on December 14th and my husband will get none. And I remember even that first year, my grief was accepted and seen and supported. And I think my husband got a book and a scarf, both from two of my friends who were therapists. Um, there really was very little space for his grief. So I'm glad he had music as an outlet. He's written a number of albums um, inspired by Anna and inspired by our family and music. And um, he continues to be faculty at a local university where he, you know, draws deeply from that well of creativity to connect with students, connect with audiences. And, and music is a gift. You know, art is a gift. These are pathways that, that we can use towards our healing. And as, as we heal, I think other people heal alongside us watching uh, some of this happen and can tap into their own healing and their own wells of creativity. Just yesterday, um, I was on a Zoom with someone who called for a different project. And she said, by the way, it was watching your son and daughter sing and play the piano that inspired me to, she was doing a project over at uh, at Carnegie Hall now. So it's it's just this um, music is, is an individual healing process, also a community uh, yeah. village process. And, um, you know, we've been able to support lots of great, uh, we've had a ton of fundraising concerts, we've been able to support lots of great work uh, um, in, in our communities, you know, in the arts. And because of connection, you know, this is a story about connection. My husband and I graduated from and both taught in an organization in our early careers um, named Capital Region Education Council. And, you know, th that's a, that was our family. And uh, after the shooting, uh, they were actually building out an elementary magnet music school, which they have asked if they could uh, name after Anna Grace. So the Crack wow. Anna Grace. Academy of the Arts Elementary School, which will be a pre-K three to eighth grade, brand new 158,000 square foot building will this December, it already exists, but it's brand new building will be in effect uh, this December. And we are excited to see future leaders grow from this building and, and every student at the Anna Grace Academy sings, dances, or plays an instrument, depending on how old they are. And every staff person in that building is currently reading What Happened to You by Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey. So we are really excited about that. Oh, love it. I'd wow. Lo I'd lo lo love to visit that school and, and just see all the things they're doing. Well, all the things they're doing. I'd love to know some of the musical things they're doing and, and see it in action. It's all of the things we talk about in science. But seeing it like they're they're always doing rhythmic play, they are always doing. Uh, I mean, it's it is fascinating. The educators are just top of the line. It is a beautiful school. Yeah, great. Uh, thanks for thanks for sharing that school with us too. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, that's so cool. And I, I you just said right, 
music brings about, I think you said a community healing process. It's so true, right? It goes back to kind of your earlier definition of what, what holistic healing means. It's yes, there's a huge individual component of us finding our own space, but we have to find space within our community as well. And, and music, yeah, I mean, you see that, you see that in, in, in so many cultures, right? So I'm glad that you brought up kind of that cultural perspective of even how, you know, men versus women are allowed to grieve and what that can look like. That music kind of creates this equal playing field. Um, may, maybe that's maybe not the right word to say, but this this space that everyone can can be together. Yep, I had to move to a different room. I didn't want you to get the outside noise. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we saw you on the move. We thought you were just regulating. Oh, well, you guys are pretty regulating. So, um, yeah. you know, I, I can't tell you how much being in community matters to, to healing. So again, to any educator listening, um, the importance of reaching out, whether you need help or if, even if you can help someone else, that is so important. And it can be, you know, uh, Bruce often talks about how uh, those moments of connection during the day being so important, almost as important as that, you know, 50 minute uh, unit of therapy every two weeks, right? And And we've, so many things have interrupted our capacity to being able to get those moments of connection. Like right now I'm feeling pretty good because I see friends that I haven't seen in a long time since BAMP. And I'm sad that BAMP has had to be canceled two years in a row and might not ever happen again. But I remember these faces that I have positive connections with. And that makes me feel like, oh, okay, you know, this is good. So again, thank you for what you're doing, what you're trying to put out in this world, the, the good information. It, it really does matter. And it's important now more than ever. Oh, well, that means a lot. Thank you so much. I, I bet Jessica and I can both still hear Jimmy playing Amazing oh. Grace on his one of his many saxophones that are that he plays with, uh -huh. but I, that's etched in, in my heart. I'll tell you that. Oh, yeah. uh, that beautiful concert that, and we would have liked to heard you sing or what we don't. I don't know what what's your musical specialty. Trust me. Hey, listen. Trust me. You don't want to hear me sing. Um, uh, I played the flute, and 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 yeah, you don't want to hear me sing. But yes, um, it was so awesome of Bruce to integrate music always into into and so important right mm -hmm. um for us to create uh the arts and 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 relevant cultural practices um into healing so yeah i mean don't we all think that is going to be that that will be the key to healing in this post pan well we're not even in a post pandemic in this pandemic world we're in i i think the arts are going to be our emphasis or need to be in order to bring about that inner healing that we keep talking about and the, the community healing that we all want to see happen that goes beyond the individual, but goes to the whole mm -hmm. community. Now, what we're just talking about, looking at each other on screen and just feeling good. You know, yesterday we had a, a work, a call with many, many educators and teachers and all I wanted to do is scroll the screen. Mm -hmm. And just look at faces. And I know no one is seeing our faces on this podcast, but they would see smiles and that, you know, we're we're feeling good about being together. And I, I think that community piece, I, I don't I still want to listen more about how you're doing that, how you're bringing about community, because I think that is the key to this whole time period that we're in. And, and maybe it should always be the key. But how how are you doing that? And I know Jessica's doing that at her school 
school as well. I'd love to hear from both of you, but how are we building this community piece? Because I think it's our only way forward. Yeah, and can I add to that real quick? Because I think this is where, you know, earlier you shared that story about the LA Kings reaching out to your family after this, this big tragedy, right? A after this adverse experience. Um, and I was saying, you know, when, when COVID first started, we, it wasn't the LA Kings, but you had musicians on TV giving free concerts. You had people saying that teachers, you know, were superheroes. You had, I mean, you name it. There was so much there and then it all left. And so, you know, this is a, a, a typical pattern for a crisis, right? Like those first five months plus ish for those in the adversity, um, not that it's manageable or bearable, but you have, you have people, right? Uh, and then right around seven to nine months later, you are, you are lower than you were right after the crisis. And so that's why I also want to focus on, well, what does this community lens mean? Because that's what I see with our teachers. They're lower than they've been before. Is all, all of that is gone. The LA Kings are no longer there anymore. And so how do we lean into community right now? No, but that's kind of what's coming to mind for me. So let's, um, I, I'm so glad. So even though this is going to be kind of hard to talk about and, and feel very vulnerable, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I think you have to be very attuned to community and healing and, and all of it in order to, to kind of see it from that lens. But you're absolutely right. I remember maybe two, three years after Newtown reaching out to a friend um, who experienced a loss after 9-11. We are coming up to the 20-year anniversary of 9-11 uh, uh, this year. And yeah. I'm noticing that we're talking about everything except those families that lost people. We're talking about everything except those people in the center ring of that tragedy. So I spoke to that same friend um, yesterday and I said, did you notice? And she said, of course we notice. It is always the way. You are only remembered in the first few months. And after that, you're kind of forgotten. And we've been at this for 20 years. This is the most attention we've gotten since the 10 year anniversary and still people aren't thinking about the families. It's just extraneous stuff popping up and, and we are forgotten. And I remember she was the same one who warned me in the beginning. She said, Nelba, I know you're doing a lot of stuff now, but at some point I want you to know the only people left will be those in the inner ring, you and the other family. So make sure you maintain your connections with, with those people in the inner rings because everyone else is leaving. They will leave as soon as they can. And I was so depressed and so sad, but she was also right. There's this extra attention in the beginning. And then that's why I said, it's so important to number one, when you're helping in the beginning, be realistic about what you're offering. If you're offering a one-time event, that's great. Say you're offering that one-time event. One of the worst things we can do as helpers is over-promise and under-deliver vulnerable, yeah. hurting people. So we say, I am here for three months. I am here for a 12-month experience. We are realistic. We do not over-promise. And, and we're clear with our boundaries, right? I think too often, one of the reasons why it's so painful for survivors 
and those who experience tragedy in the first few months is because everybody wants to help and those boundaries are really unclear. And I talk about this a lot about the helpers who came in after Sandy Hook and how they were so desperate to make things better that it, it just wasn't unrealistic. So being really clear with boundaries, setting clear expectations, not over-promising and under-delivering is really important. And for everyone to know their role, I think knowing your role is incredibly important. There, this is not to say that those experiences, whether they were concerts or special things, weren't important. They were important. They, it's important to build memories after yeah. something awful, right? Um, enduring something awful. Um, we, we have a connection with Madison Square Garden, and, and over eight years, they've, they've allowed us to see games from box suites, you know, hockey games, New York Rangers, and we'd never have those positive memories without them because, you know, our family isn't going to go sit in a Lexus box, you know, without somebody offering those tickets. And also, we know that that was their role. Their role was to offer that, not to do the other work of healing. So does that does that make sense in terms of the early support versus the... So, so you got to find two things. It's great to have those experiences, but you also need to understand that you will need longer term, more regular support as well, and that those need to be balanced. And those two should not be confused. I love that. And, and know your role because... We need teachers to show up and be teachers. They don't need to show up and be therapists. They don't need to show up and be parents. They need to show up, be teachers, be, be the caregivers that we know that they can be in the educational setting and trust that if they're, right, if they're taking care of themselves to some degree, if they're regulated and have that space for them, that the hundreds upon thousands of unstructured therapeutic experiences that they have with those kids day in and day out, that's that's what they do. That's their place. And it's no one, listen, you and I are both clinicians. And, and I love that you said earlier uh, today of, you know, I, I, I think I'm a good clinician. I can have a good, you know, 50 minute session, I, but I can't recreate the thousands of doses that that kid could get at a school, right? With regulated teachers where connection is happening every day. So yeah, know your role. Everyone's got different roles. And that's, that's the healing component of a community. And, and your role is valuable and important. My 100%. goodness, the teachers that are showing up doing their jobs every day. I know it. Here's the thing. I just feel like when we become desperate and overwhelmed, it is easy to feel like we're not doing enough. And I don't know a teacher that isn't doing enough. Not one. They are doing so much. I don't know a healing person right now, marriage, family therapist, social worker, counselor, who isn't doing enough. We feel like we're doing not enough sometimes maybe because we're in a very difficult season in history, but that doesn't mean not enough. It's just yeah. really hard. Yeah. And, no. and in some ways you can do too much and then it really impacts kind of what you're actually giving out. Go ahead, Grainer. Sorry. Well, I, I think both of those statements really relate to what I'm, I'm just going to repeat something Nelva said earlier, and it, it really hitting me at times here that we are so resolution focused in, and maybe as America, I don't know if it's just Americans or if it's just human nature, but we just want to put a tie a bow on it. We just want the happy ending. We want to make it happen quickly. And that puts a lot of undue pressure on us to do too much. And what I hear you guys saying is, no, we got to back off and, and just do little. 
a little, but do it every day. I mean, and consistently not try to be someone we're not. And thank you, Nelva, for reminding all of us that don't overpromise and underdeliver, which I think has been a big part of a lot of systems of, of mission and care is, you know, because we overpromise and underdeliver because we want a quick resolution and we don't get it. We seem to bail out. So I, I love all those things you guys are saying and, and thinking of this as incremental. And I wish everybody in the podcast could watch you twist that bottle cap off just tiny little bits at a time to say, yeah, just little bits, little tiny doses that Jessica mentioned that make the difference in the long run. Our tendency is that we have a problem and then we decide who is going to wear the superhero cape? And we put hero capes on people. We don't give them support. We give them a cape and we say, go fix it. If you think about Parkland, we did that to those kids. If you think about Sandy Hook, we did that as a nation to those parents of which I am one. If yeah. you think of problems, we look at those most impacted. We, we, we stick a cape on and we go, oh, go do it because- you know, we love that resilience and overcoming story. Right now, who are we doing it to? Primary healthcare workers, first responders, educators, right? We're saying here, take this cape because we want the resilience. Go be resilient. And what I am suggesting, if no one else hears anything I say, but this is please save yourself first. Think about going on an airplane and hearing a steward say, if you're traveling with an unaccompanied minor, Please put on your own oxygen mask before you put on the oxygen mask of anyone else. And that is how we're going to survive this time. That's how we're going to go forward. And we're not just going to survive. We're going to thrive, but we're right. going to do those things only if we put on our own oxygen mask first. And those are hard won lessons from a woman who uh, was a teacher then a therapist and then lost a child in a mass shooting and was superheroed herself. So I'm actually trying to back off. That's why I said the Honor Grace Project is one thing. I am not in a place where I think it's going to be the only thing or I'm just trying to grow so much and go, no, I, I literally just want to heal. And uh, maybe through my healing help, touch other people. It's really hard to want to say anything after that, to tell you the truth. Um, that's an exclamation point. I'm so grateful for... Um, Bruce and the amazing people I have met through this network of, of healers that again, you know, starts in Banff and may perhaps met you all through tragedy, but that's not why we stay. You know, we're all going through a really hard time right now. We can do this if we stay connected. That's one of the ways we move forward. And, and that's what I'd like to say. I'd like to say, this is how we move forward. We move forward together. That is really what we've got right now. And, and no, there is no space in this place for shame, for pretending like we're okay when we're not, not having proper resources, not asking for them. Literally, this is about staying alive, staying healthy and thriving for yourself, for your family, for your community, for that job you have. I just think it's so important that people hear that. Yeah. Because let me tell you the gift it's been even for me to stop pretending I was okay when I wasn't. That has been the greatest gift. Yeah. I, I cannot thank you enough for joining us, um, for your time and for sharing that post-traumatic wisdom, I think is what um, Bruce says now, because it means a lot. And I hope for those that are listening, again, find that space and say, I'm not okay if they need to say that. Thank you so much for joining us, friends.
Oh, yeah. thank you. It was just a joy. It was, it was awesome. Thank you so much. And uh, we should, we'll connect soon. Okay. Bye.